Where the hell have you been, soldier? Training, sir! Training, sir! What kind of training, son? Pizza training, sir! Welcome to another great episode of Drew and Sam Talk Training. I am Drew Helmholtz with Better Than Yesterday Consulting. And I'm Sam with Fowser Consulting. And in today's episode, we are graced with the presence of an executive, ex-executive? Ex-executive. It's another expatriate. I know. We do expatriates a lot, actually. It's kind of fun. Well, it's the only time they'll talk to us. It is actually the only time. That's fine. Uh, Mr. Tim McIntyre, how are you doing? I'm fabulous. How are you, Drew? <laughs> Fantastic. I think Tim's tired of us already, Drew. I know. It's fine. See, he'll start talking and we'll stop momentarily. So, Tim, if you have listened to the episodes before when we interview folks, I get to ask the first question. And the first question is always the fabulous softball of tell us your story in the event that there's one person that listens to this that actually doesn't know who you are. Well, I uh, spent 37 years with Domino's. I started in 1985. I had the opportunity to work for uh, all of the CEOs directly. Uh, when I left in 2022, uh, I had a team of 65. We were responsible for internal communication, public relations, crisis management, travel and events, graphic design, government affairs, investor relations, and customer care. It was an incredible experience, a great ride. And after 37 years, it was uh, time for me to uh, step aside and let other people take over. I think it's important to let the next generation come through. Um, but I wasn't done. I still feel like I can add value and uh, I have a lot of years ahead of me. And uh, so I've been focusing on doing some keynote speaking and some consulting and doing a lot of traveling and running. And just uh, those are things that I love to do, and I'm having a great time doing it. Tim, you said you worked for all of the CEOs directly. I would imagine that's a pretty small club of people that have worked for all of them. I think it is, yeah, because there were there were moments. You know, obviously, I didn't start by reporting to uh, Tom Monahan, but uh, over uh, over the early parts of my career, sometimes I ended up replacing my bosses. And my bosses had reported to, to Tom. So uh, there were moments when I suddenly found myself reporting to the, the founder and the CEO of the company. And uh, back in those days, he was all about daily reports and, and daily progress. So you would spend part of your time writing up the report of what you did that day so that you can tell him what you did that day. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so it was, it was an interesting a uh, blend of a sense of urgency and thoughts about a better use of your time. But he owned the place and that's what we did. When I took over uh, PR, uh, I, I started with the company editing the company newspaper. And then, and in the interim, there was like a five year, four or five year period where he had gone through uh, four or five PR directors. People had come and gone. Uh, they were either frustrated and left or they just weren't the right fit. And in between those gaps, I would lead the PR department because I had a degree, a degree in journalism and I knew how to talk to reporters. 
And um, Tom came to me at one point and said, you know, we've noticed that our publicity grows when we don't have a PR director, when, when you're the person leading it. You know, when we have a PR director, suddenly we don't have a lot of PR. Would you like the job? And I asked him if he was mad at me and he didn't understand why. And I said, well, you know, we've had five PR directors in four years. That sounds like a, a short, you know, career opportunity for me. But we got through it and uh, I, I explained to him that, you know, he had three rules for me. The rules were uh, don't lie, don't bash the competition. And if you and I ever disagree, I am right 51% of the time, you know, and, <laughs> and I said, well, I, I, the first two are easy and, you know, you own the place. You're probably going to be right 98% of the time. And my, my request for him was to understand that I didn't work directly for him, that I believed that I worked for the brand and for uh, the franchise owners out there. And that uh, there were some things that he did in his personal life that because it was a private company, got a lot of publicity that was not always favorable. Uh, so I asked him if he would be okay with me separating him, him from his own company sometimes, and I would do so respectfully. Uh, and he was absolutely okay with that. So it was a good blend of um, honesty and uh, integrity and the fact that we were a a private company at the time. If a reporter called and asked what sales were last night, I could actually tell them, you know, so I could get into the very, very specific details of what sales were like on Super Bowl Sunday or Halloween, uh, you know, what we were promoting. And when we became public years later, ironically, the more public you are, the less you can say. So uh, it, was, it was an interesting blend. I used to say the same thing. It seems like the moment we went public, we became very private. Yeah, because you can't say anything unless you say it to, to one person without saying it to everybody. So you had to be very careful in, uh, you know, overnight uh, media interviews changed. Over the years, you've talked to lots of people. Um, in fact, probably some of our listeners have heard you from a stage in Vegas a few times. So if you wouldn't mind, I know I have at least four rallies where you said on the stage, I'm retiring. This is the last time I've done this. So would you mind sharing a story from the rally of, of, of fun, something of interest that our, our listeners may not know of behind the scenes at the rally? That's a great question. Uh, yeah, I started, um, you know, the, the rally was not called the rally in the 1980s. It was started, it was, it was called, it began being called the rally. Uh, in the 1990s, when uh, franchisee and icon Frank Meeks came up with with the idea for the name, you know, it was uh, a franchise conference for years, and he thought it needed to be more aspirational and inspirational, and that it should be called a rally. And by adding the word worldwide, we were sending the message that we wanted our international constituents to come and be part of it because we're all part of the same team. You know, I think there, there were there were a few uh, funny moments, but uh, the reason that I ended up on the stage was, frankly, because I was bored sitting in the audience. We had some executives who were uh, a little bit stiff back in those days, and they would get on the stage and read the read the criteria for the awards and then just name the winner. Well, the criteria for the awards were 
already well known because they were included in every nomination and they were in a booklet on the table in front of people so they could see it. And all they were doing was reading from the booklet. And one day uh, I decided to write a potential script for them. This was the late 80s, I think. I just wrote about the people, the winners. I uh, included some stuff that I thought was funny. Um, because, you know, if, you, if you're in an award program and you win or your, your partner wins, you're happy and you're entertained. And for everybody else, I just thought there needed to be something that would liven it up and would speak to everybody else. And so I wrote this script and I dropped it off. And a few weeks later, I was summoned down to the big office. And these three stern looking executives were looking at me and they they threw the script back at me and they said, thank you. We can't do this. And I said, OK, well, thank you. You're, you know, you're welcome. I was just trying. And, you know, I understand. No, 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 no. You don't understand. You're going to do this. <laughs> and I said, I, no, no, I'm not. I'm a writer. I'm not a, I'm not a speaker. I'm a writer. And they said, well, you're going to read it then. So um, it was probably 87, 88. I was there at the company just a few years. And it sort of was sort of an accident that I got on there um, and had to quickly learn how live production works, how, how to organize these events um, and how to work with other speakers. Um, there was one moment when we were uh, a few minutes um, before opening the doors for thousands of people. Uh, and I was standing at the foot of the stage and I looked up at one of the spotlights and I said to the producer, is it supposed to be on fire like that? And literally <laughs> one of the spotlights had caught fire because it overheated. And as they were uh, putting out that fire, they triggered something and one of the drapery walls that were on the side of the stage collapsed. And so there was a group of people suddenly putting out a fire, literally putting out a fire and then other people reconstructing the wall. And then at that time, the CEO walked up behind me and said, how's it going? It's like, it's going really well. Best one yet. I need three, three more minutes before we open the doors. But, um, you know, you never know what's going to happen. And uh, sometimes we get speakers who love themselves a little bit more than the audience does. And we had a, uh, a famous football coach, I guess he was famous at the time, come on stage. And we wanted to talk to him because we were, we were redoing our logo. We had redone the image and we were trying to inspire people that you can through words and, uh, and symbol changes that you can change the culture. You can change an attitude. Because his football team, they had changed their uniform and changed their logo and changed their attitude and went from bottom of the Big Ten to winning the Big Ten. And that was the message we wanted. Like just the, sim the symbolism of changing can help you improve and motivate you. And he understood that. But his speech was felt like every play of every quarter from the first game all the way through to the Rose Bowl. So he was. Just like, well, then we ran this play up the middle and it worked. And so we ran it again and it worked. And, and then we threw a pass and then we intercepted and, and he did it for an hour. And um, we only wanted 45 minutes. Unlike award shows on TV, you know, we don't, we don't have the orchestra 
to just start playing over people and we don't turn off their mics. You, you got to be polite, but speakers are the biggest wild card in a rally. Yeah, I would imagine so. I would imagine so. Speaking of rallies and wild cards and speakers, you and I had the pleasure of joining the Canadians a few weeks back. You actually presented. You weren't just the MC. And when I say just the MC, you did a heck of a job like you always did or always do. And you did one particular presentation called Leadership Inside Out. From the inside out, yes. It's, it's good that you know your stuff better than I do. That's important. <laughs> know your own stuff. So tell us a little bit about that, because I think that as Drew and I travel around and do workshops for general managers and supervisors, we always hear, well, I know my team. So I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, it started. I started thinking about it um, as a presentation after I left, but it was really a philosophy that I've had for years. And I told the story of my son, who's now 30. when he was five, uh, his kindergarten teacher asked him what his parents did for a living, right? And, you know, at the time, his mom was going to law school, and he said, my daddy works on the top floor of Domino's Pizza, but he doesn't do anything important. And, you know, at that time, I was a director leading this, you know, national communication and PR program, and I was on stage at rallies, and I was feeling pretty good about myself. and. And the teacher said, your daddy works on the top floor of Domino's Pizza, but he doesn't do anything important. And his response was, right, because they don't make the pizza up there. And she laughed when she told the story. And I laughed. Uh, my, My wife laughed even more. It was funny, but it really got me to start thinking about my career. And at that time, you know, I was still in my probably early 30s, I think, at this point, and late 20s, early 30s. And at, at that stage of your career, you're thinking all about you. Like, what's next? What can I do? What can I get? What can I get? And the fact that he said it in his own little innocent way made me think that there's a better and different way of thinking about things. And um, so I started thinking about what I could give versus what I could get. And instead of thinking about my own career, about me, 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 what if I thought about we and the greater good and the collective of dominoes? And that really made the difference, I think. And as I got older and and more mature and my team grew, um, I realized that we all make assumptions about people based on where they're from, they have an accent, what they're wearing, what what their hairstyle is. Um, and often those um, those initial impressions are wrong. And so even though it's well known, like the, the cliche is trust your first instinct or the first impression is so important, it is, but only in a superficial way. Part of what I told the audience last week was I had a fellow executive who had come into the company, had been around for a few months. I was trying to get to know all of the the vice presidents. And when I got in, when it was my turn, she said, I already know who you are. And then she, she created this tale of this child of privilege born with the silver spoon and live living in the, the richest neighborhood in Michigan and all this, this 
this fantasy of who I was because of how I behaved, how I acted and how I carried myself. And she was uh, very surprised to find out that, you know, I grew up part of my formative years were in a trailer park where uh, people don't expect much of people who live in trailer parks. Uh, at school, if they uh, learn that you're living in one of those, they just assume you're um, not as smart, you're poor. That part was true. You know, it's it's one of those things that sometimes we put we put invisible barriers on people, and we 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 misinterpret who they are and what their potential is. My message um, is kind of twofold. One. To individuals, you know, you shouldn't let what you were born into define who you are or, or hold you back, right? Um, and the restaurant industry is the perfect example of this because, you know, you don't need a degree from a pedigreed university, right, to, to be successful in the restaurant industry and many other industries is sheer hard work, work ethic, integrity passion to everybody else if this person was so off in judging me she was probably off in judging everybody else right i actually saw a graphic literally just this weekend on linkedin i think and it was like this big circle this a big solid circle with a dot in the middle or not a dot just a small dot in in within that circle and they were labeled the big circle was called somebody's life and the little dot was what you know about it. I probably will steal that and add it to my presentation because that's really what what it's about, right? You don't know people. Do you think that had she not had that meeting with you and allowed you to tell her who you really were, that would have changed the way she would have dealt with you? It did change the way she dealt with me, right? Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know what she would have, how she would have behaved to me if she thought, that I was this child of privilege with the silver spoon. I think given how she described what she thought I was, she implied that my success was due to my birth order or the birth, the, the zip code I was born into. And ironically, she was right, but for all the wrong reasons. Right, right, right. Hey, one of the uh, the other things you said in that same presentation, I believe, um, and, and we talked about it later night at, at night when we were probably having a nice cold glass of water, was that um, we never know what people are carrying around with them, that everybody's got baggage. Talk a little bit about that. And yeah, that that's that's one of the critical parts of this is um, I I shared some of my baggage, right? Some of the things that. I went through, and my belief is that all of us are carrying something. We're carrying either something from our our childhood, or we're carrying something that's happening right now. There's something with our kids, or with our spouse, or with our parents, um, with our physical health. We don't know. And if if you know that you are carrying something that nobody else knows, if you've got this hidden baggage that's weighing you down. You want people to understand without sharing your secret, but you want people to understand that this is why you are who you are. The best way to start is by assuming that everybody else has baggage too. 
And if you want space and grace and support, so does the person next to you and the person next to them. And we were talking about on a superficial level, knowing your team means you know their name, you maybe that you know their birthday, you know that they have two kids and a dog or whatever, right? But or that they want to become a franchisee or they want to be a manager. That's that's all important. But knowing your team starts with being vulnerable and letting them know who you are and why you're there. And uh, you know, I say, you know, if you if you want to be perceived as something, you should be that something. Be the person you want people to think you are. And if you want people to think that you're a great boss and that you care about them, the best way to do that is to actually care about them. I think that's a darn good start. You mentioned early on, Tim, that you came to a point in your career where you decided it was more important of what you gave than what you got. How's that worked out for you? It's worked out pretty well. Um, and, the, you know, that was that's the theme, right? Leadership from the inside out. And I think about every day what I can give versus what I can get. And uh, I tell the story and it's it's absolutely true with my Franklin planner that I refill every year. And the first thing that I put in on the first page on or about December 31st every year are four words. And those four words are be of more value, be more valuable, not make more money, not have X, Y, Z clients, but be of more value. And to me, that means to my family, to my community, to um, the people around me. And you can be of more value in a lot of different ways. It's not, it's not always about writing a check or um, volunteering. It's being nice to people. It's saying thank you to the grocery store, cashier, the person at the gas station, the dry cleaner, whatever, you know, just acknowledging them and thanking them for the work that they do. And, you know, I think those of us in the restaurant industry, because we are often looked down upon, especially working in restaurants and the stores, we're more sensitive to people who work in retail. And so I think retail workers are kinder to re other retail workers, but it's the rest of us that, that uh, need the lesson to, it doesn't cost you anything to say, thank you. It really doesn't, but it's priceless. So speaking of priceless, Tim, occasionally we like to have a little bit of fun on this podcast. I said, have you had any so far? I mean, I have, because I, I think I actually know which worldwide rally the spotlight caught on fire. <laughs> but that's just me. I was telling a story on one of them when we interviewed um, some Dave Brandon guy where uh, I brought my kids in and there was the Christmas setup, and one of the best trees was always in Dave's lobby. And of course, Dave comes out, sees my kids and asks what they want. And they say a puppy. And he looks at me and goes, then dad, get your kids a puppy. Cause thanks CEO guy. Get me, tell me to go get my kids a puppy. I am certain after 37 years around that building, you've had interesting um, experiences with people, whether it's something like that or another one for me where I watched Stan Gage and Patrick Doyle throw a football around as they talked about ways to uh, buy stores or sell stores. 
Um, I'm sure there's an interesting thing you could share where maybe you don't share a name as I have, because all of those have been shared on our podcast, but maybe there's a funny little thing that's occurred that you would like to share with our listeners. You know, maybe a executive going through pizza prep school and getting a score less than he thought he deserved. I've heard of that person. Wow. For you listening right now, Tim is not trying to figure out if there are any stories. He's trying to figure out which one he can tell. He's filtering. Yes, he's totally filtering. Yeah, he's going through the Rolodex like you could see it. Yeah. There's smoke (laughs) coming out of his ears right now because his filter is his filter is like the spotlight at the rally. There are a lot. There are there are so many stories. Yeah. (laughs) This may be a first. You know, I, I, I said to you when we were in Canada, we've known each other for I don't know, 30 plus years, but I feel like I just finally got to meet you. This is the first time I think I've seen you speechless. You're, 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 uh, you're always quick witted. And one of the things that one of my very first memories, the working at Domino's is it goes way, way back right to the Tom Monahan era. And the year before I started his team, the Detroit Tigers won the world series. After I started, you know, Tom had become instantly wealthy took him a long time but then you know it's slow and then suddenly he was really wealthy and he bought he bought a yacht right and he named it the tigress and the team was invited down to the detroit yacht club and at the rooster tail in detroit on the river so that he could christen this boat he was wearing his world series ring and you know he christened a boat by slamming a bottle of champagne on it right and crack it and he christened the boat Tigress. And so he got on there. We were all on the dock watching and he holds up the bottle of champagne and he slams it against the boat and it cracks and he throws his hands up in the air and his World Series ring flies off his hand and blink. it wasn't funny to him and it shouldn't have been funny <laughs> to the rest of us. But the 1984 World Series ring is somewhere either at the bottom of the Detroit River or at by this point somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean. Trying to trying to manage that. Thankfully, I was uh, I was just so new that I didn't have. I was so far away from the the executive circle that all I could do was witness it. That was pretty funny. Wow, that's a great one. Oh my god! <laughs> For people that are listening to the podcast, they're like, "Let's get some diving gear." Yeah, it was a long time ago, though. So yeah, you know, it it it's funny because I I did a lot of you know crisis management stuff and and sometimes the stuff is is sort of laughable in retrospect but you know the people and personalities are just so fine i remember one rally we were not quite as big as the rallies are today but um we shared our conference space with the un, the funeral directors convention so many jokes Oh my gosh, there's so many jokes. You know, and I, I did joke that like I saw their keynote speaker and he was really stiff. I was gonna say, yeah, it's a stiff party. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but you know, you, you would go down this hall and you know, our expo with with was bright and lively and pizza ovens and the world's fastest pizza maker and all of our vendors and stuff. And I peeked into theirs and it was just row upon row of caskets and tombstone designs and it was a really interesting dichotomy of pizza and not. So what I didn't hear you say is they weren't having the world's fastest embalming contest. They were <laughs> at, at least not in the expo center. They didn't. Oh my goodness gracious. 
So you talked about your time as a crisis manager, and I think you got some pretty great recognition around the country as a crisis manager, didn't you? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. One of my presentations on crisis management is called We Sell Pizza, What Could Possibly Go Wrong? You know, as a PR person and as a person who had the chance to lead customer care for a few years, Domino's raves, as we should, about 3 million pizzas a day to somebody of of my experience, I think that that's 3 million potential <laughs> crises a day, right? You know, because it's a, it's about hiring, it's about circumstance, it's about training. Sometimes companies do it to themselves. Sometimes it's crises are inflicted upon them from the outside. And it all depends on how you, how you react to them. You know, and I tell the story of, you know, traveling musician who was forced to check his guitar instead of putting it in the overhead bin. And it comes along out of the baggage claim broken and United Airlines would not reimburse him. He just wanted 300 bucks for a new guitar at the time. And their response to him was, how do we know it wasn't broken when you checked it? Right. And I'm a traveling musician. I'm not going to travel the country with a broken guitar. I mean, they were all Kiss fans, wasn't it? No. Who was it that used to break the guitars in the, in the early eighties? The who? So, yeah, totally different era. But, um, you know, and so he he took his broken guitar and he made a music video called United Breaks Guitars and it became viral. And when the story came out about why he did this video and the fact that United treated him so poorly over three hundred dollars, shareholders at the time bailed on United and they lost one hundred and eighty million dollars in value just because shareholders were dumping the stock. And. $300 $300 is, is uh, nothing to an organization that big. And it was lack of leadership or policy planning, whatever. But, you know, and, you know, there are things that we, we experience in retail and there are millions of us every day who put on the uniform and work really hard in the stores and, and in the supply chain centers and in the offices. And it takes years to build a brand. Sometimes if you're not careful, it can take one little thing to disrupt it. And, you know, we had that little thing happen in 2009 when a couple of board team members decided to make a video, a hoax video of them tainting food. And that was our first experience with a viral video. And uh, thankfully, we were able to, to figure it out. It was the first time that I, you know, we, we captured headshots of, of these team members and we sent them out to managers, every store in the system uh, in the U.S. And when, when we got to the, to the part of it and we, we found who they were and we realized it was a hoax, but we still had the health department come into the store and inspect it and uh, we cleaned it up. Patrick Doyle, president of the company, went on YouTube and explained what happened and apologized. One of the first times, if not the first time, that the victim actually did the apologizing because, you know, we, he was apologizing on behalf of the brand for something that somebody did to us. When we were communicating to store managers after uh, in the first few days, we shared with our store managers what the facts were that it was two team members in, in one store, bored on a Sunday, 
did this video. They thought it was funny. It was a hoax. We don't, you know, we, we, what the brand stands for. And then we actually gave managers permission when they were, when they were getting questions from their customers to say whatever they wanted to say about those two individuals. Oh my, there's stories there. there and there were stories there. You, you showed the picture of, of Christy in Canada and it was amazing the difference of the picture while she was doing the prank and her mugshot. And her mugshot, yes. She looked like two completely different people. Those two pictures were taken less than a week apart. So if you were to give somebody one piece of advice to not end up with a great looking picture on the left side of the screen and an awful looking picture on the right side of the screen as a, um, I mean, a PR magazine said you're a crisis manager of the year. Isn't that correct? That is correct. So as crisis manager of the year. Oh, oh nice. Nice way to take that. What advice, what one piece of advice would you give general managers to not end up in a crisis? Don't do stupid stuff. I mean, it's really that simple, isn't it? It's really that simple. And, you, you know, unless you're intoxicated and if you're intoxicated at work, that's a stupid thing. Generally frowned upon. Generally frowned upon. The, the idea, if you come up with an idea that you might think is funny or whatever, right, you know, part of you should know whether what you're about to do is a good thing or not. And you should listen to the part that says, I don't think this is a good idea. But the culture has changed, right? And it, there was a time when we weren't carrying cameras on our persons, right? We don't, we have a camera in our palm all the time. And it's one thing to do stupid stuff. It's another thing to do stupid stuff and have it recorded. And it's yet another thing to record yourself doing stupid stuff, right? And that's what they did. And you know, one of, you know, we've had many examples of customers uh, recording managers who are behaving badly or responding poorly to um, a concern, but it takes a, a special kind of stupid. That was. <laughs> Sam mentioned um, at the rally in Canada to record yourself doing something like that. But even with this conversation, right, those two people must have also been carrying around something right and that's that's the the challenge of me it's so i try not to make fun of them too much because while well, what they did was outrageously dumb and it hurt the brand and it was a hoax they must have been carrying around something that made them think that this was a good idea i don't ever want to meet the two of them and i can't quite say that i forgive the two of them but this, you know, this was all a team. This was this was the power of the Domino's brand. This was not me, despite you know, crisis manager of the year stuff. This was all about the team and the brand, the resilience of the people in the stores to keep selling pizza and to keep moving forward and to being able to say, this is not how we do the business. This is my store. And I don't, this right. You started with the United story with the guitar. And, you know, you're you're talking about very, very nicely that, PR award of the year went to you and your team and not just you. And yet with the United example, it's very clear that there's a leadership issue and what you're discussing actually goes right back to your core values that, that it wasn't about what you were going to get out of this. It's how you can be a value 
I would wager going into this, you never thought, look at all, look at this fabulous opportunity. What's the, the political line? Uh, never let a crisis go to waste, right? I'm certain that that wasn't the way you were thinking at the moment. I truly do. And I hope our listeners get it that who you are as a person, get back to the leadership from the inside out, who you are as a person should shine through in what your actions are, even when you're carrying baggage. So I want to change topics just a little bit with you here as we're coming up on the end of our time with you, because I think you gave us 30 minutes and uh, we have kind of exceeded that. So in the room behind you, there are um, a bunch of uh, medals from hobby work that you do, like running. Do you read books, Tim? I try to read uh, at least 24 books a year, two books a month. What books are you reading, Tim? Uh, well, I, I'm reading three books right now, depending on my mood. So I try to do a mix of, of novels. I love historical fiction. I love, uh, in recent years, I've begun to really fall in love with biographies uh, and then professional development or self-help books. So the fiction is um, the latest novel by John Irving called The Last Chairlift. It's about 900 plus pages. Uh, on the biography side, uh, I just finished uh, a book about Ulysses S. Grant, and now I'm actually reading the biography of Jimmy Carter. And on the professional development side, while I just finished a book called Purposeful Retirement, I'm actually reading a book called The 60-Something Crisis. Why would you read a book like that? You don't look like you're in your 60s. Thank you. I am 60. My doctor tells me that my because of all my running, my biological age is probably still in my 40s, but chronologically, I'm 60. Uh, and the premise of the book is um, if you're changing careers or you're retiring in your 60s, because that's what culture tells us to do, even though retirement in and of itself is a relatively modern phenomenon uh, with today's longer lifespan at 60 you you rather than being near the end of your life you're only like two-thirds of the way through so what do you do with the other 30 years that you have remaining to you or to you right and parts of the book are distressing and depressing because it's called the 60 something crisis and part of it is likewise inspiring and the idea that you can kind of continue to reinvent yourself you can take this experience and continue to add value and uh, that's why I'm continuing to do what I'm doing is just to, because I believe I still have value. I just want to do it. I want to deliver it in a different way. Well, I would say Mr. McIntyre is somebody that got to spend more time with you in Canada than I spent the previous three decades. Uh, I think you're doing a heck of a good job adding value. Thank you so much. So here's, uh, here's our final question. We stole this from um, a fellow Ann Arborite, who is also an author. And that's John U. Bacon. And he ends all his podcasts by asking his guests, who is your favorite teacher and why? My favorite teacher, his name is David Medley, and he was an art teacher. I'm not an artist and I never had an art class with him, but he was also the um, coach for cross country and track at Belleville Junior High School in Michigan. Uh, I started running when I was in eighth grade. And junior high was seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. So I, he was my coach in uh, eighth and ninth grade. And I was thrilled when I went up to the high school that he also did. He got promoted and became the coach of cross country and track at Belleville High School. So I had him for two sports. 
um, over five years. We had a relationship that extended between the between the seasons and through the summer. And he was uh, low key. He understood where I came from. He was perpetually inspirational. He had some baggage too. He didn't start uh, with a silver spoon in his mouth either. You know, he helped me overcome some stuff when I was hungry because I didn't have a lot of money for lunch. Coach Medley used to say things like, you know, Tim, hungry dogs run faster, <laughs> right? You don't want to have a full belly when you're going to get on the course and run. You know, you're going to, we're going to do 12 miles today. You don't want to be full, right? So he would inspire me in, in little tweaky ways like that. And he was so meaningful in my life that I actually named my first son after him. So I have David McIntyre is an homage to David Medley whom I met in 1975, 1976. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Is, is David your first or second favorite son? Because I already know Ethan is your least favorite son. <laughs> well, he's my firstborn son. Okay. Well played. Nicely played. Well played. Wow. Crisis manager of the year coming out right there. I have a 13-year-old at home who is, because he's the only one in the house, he's my current favorite. Nice. So. I like it. And and because of Ethan's fifth grade, my dad doesn't do anything important. Will always be your least favorite. Yeah, and he knows that. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's why I said it because you said it first. Yeah. So in in yeah. front of a bunch of people. Well, Tim, thank you so much for the time. It's been uh, just amazing, and I'm so grateful for uh, all the time we had together in Toronto or Toronto in Windsor as well. That was that was just great. I. Um, I was beaming for a couple of days after that, telling my wife about this guy that I had known for three decades, but finally got to meet. So thanks for that. He was, it was almost embarrassing. Yeah, it was almost embarrassing. Yeah, <laughs> it's possible that yeah. was true. So Tim, thank you so much for the time today. It was just amazing. I hear that you're doing some consulting as well and uh, some emceeing on the side. How do folks get a hold of you if they're interested? It was a great uh, opportunity to speak to you, uh, Sam and Drew, uh, today also. I am doing some consulting, uh, crisis management work, some advising, uh, and some keynote speaking, as well as some emceeing. As you said, I've had an opportunity to host some uh, great Domino's events. Um, to get a hold of me is really easy. My website is tmcommsllc.com or tmcommsllc.com. And uh, for those who want to reach me, my email is uh, tpmcintyre62 at gmail.com. And I will go out on a limb and give you my cell phone number too, which is 734-604-1863. You know, while I left the brand uh, last year, I haven't really left the brand. I left the company. I haven't left the brand. Um, I love working with franchisees. I love working with the stores. Um, and it's something that I want to continue to do and uh, would love to be part of the brand moving forward. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat, even though I'm no longer a quote unquote employee of the brand. I think I'll always be uh, a small part of the brand trying to help folks have this great same experience as I've had over the last four decades. Absolutely. Dominoid forever. Yeah, there you go. All right, Tim. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Appreciate it. Wow, Drew, what a, what a great conversation with a really good guy. It's funny because everybody that's ever been to a rally kind of knows who Tim is, but that leadership inside out thing is the exact perfect metaphor for him because everybody thinks they know who Tim is and very few people really know who Tim is. 
I think much like many stage performers, their stage performance is just that. It's a performance. You know, I, I would imagine if you're, you know, anything like me at all, which we talked about on a couple of pods ago, it seems like we're becoming more and more like each other. But the people that <laughs> that see me in front of a class think they know who I am and they have no idea. You know, to Tim's point of I wanna I wanna give, I wanna know what I can give, not what I can get. I mean, when I'm when I'm in front of people, it's all about what can I give to them. I mean, make no mistake about it. I love it. Yeah, I, I feel very fortunate to be able to do what just brings me extreme happiness. But I think the reason that both you and I are successful at what we're doing, because what we're doing isn't easy. I think the reason that we're successful is because we truly have the best interests of our learners in mind when we're up there. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I had a conversation maybe two trips ago with somebody because they're like, you know, I, I really want to be a trainer like you. What's it take to be a trainer like you? And I'm like, okay, so um, before we talk about content or being on the stage, are you ready to be on an airplane 40 weeks out of the year and spend 200 nights in a hotel? And they're like, I've got little kids. I'm like, cool. Then this probably isn't for you. Like, I don't like, like full stop before you get to everything else. Just, just start with, start with this part of it. The part no one sees, right? The part I, I know you, you drive a lot and I fly a lot and it, it, nobody sees all the time taken and the time away. And, and yeah, all they see is you and I on stage and how cool is this? And I want to be a part of that. Well, start with the hard stuff. I think the other thing to remember is, you know, I think Muhammad Ali had the quote that, uh, for the young listeners, he's a famous boxer. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> You know, people don't see the hours and hours of practice for the two minutes of glory. That's not the quote. I completely hacked it. I'd, I'd have to check the Google on that one. But it's a great quote about the moment in the spotlight. Yeah, it's the overnight sensation thing where I've been doing this for 10 years. There's nothing overnight for me. You just didn't see me for 10 years. Somebody was kind enough to walk up to me in the Canada rally and say, you know, you're so gifted on stage. And I, I don't know why it hit me the way it did when it didn't, but I looked at him and I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not really gifted at all. I've, I've worked on it. I've worked on it a lot. It's, it's thousands of hours. It's like saying yeah. Werner Lomker is a gifted pizza maker. And no, he's not. He's, now, he's just worked on I, I'll, it. I'll disagree with you a little bit, right? Because there's always a level of talent. I totally agree. I joke my line is, you know, I'm six eight, just like LeBron James. One of us has talent, the other plays basketball. I mean, that's generally my joke. You know what? It'd be funny if it wasn't true. Let's let's be honest for a second here. He puts in so much work. Absolutely. And the already there because he was a physical specimen, the likes yeah. of which I will never ever be, no matter how much I hit the gym or whatever, I will never be what he was physically at sixteen, much less what he is at forty. Correct. So there's a level of talent that allows him to surpass whatever work I could do to get there. Correct. So there's always a level of talent. Werner's really good because he puts the work in. Somewhere in the back end, there's a little bit of talent there that helps with that too, right? That just puts him over the top. However, that said, the business we're in allows for work to overcome a lot of that talent gap, whether it's on stage, you and I, or in the store. Yeah, we agree on that 100%, Drew. We're not, we're not in different books or even on different pages. 
I think the point that needs to be made is anytime you see somebody at or near the top of what it is they do, it's not a gift. The gift brought them to the table. Their work took them to the head of the table. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So with that, Sam, uh, let's wrap this up. Let's dock this plane, land this boat, beach this hovercraft. Hovercraft. Nice. Yeah, I was going there too. That was, that was good. Thanks. Uh, this has been another fabulous episode of Drew and Sam Talk Training. If you don't already do so, subscribe, like, follow us, use Carrier Pigeons, smoke signals when there's a new episode. New episodes drop every Monday. If you're listening, you know that, but tell your friends, tell your family, because when you share, it matters more than us sharing it. So please, if you like this, share it with your friends. I am Drew with Better Than Yesterday Consulting. And I am Sam with Fowler Consulting. As always, gang, go out, sell more pizza, and have more fun. Bye.